Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and really, really pleasant civil dialogue across the uh, political divide. This is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, and that would be, yeah, Des Moines, Iowa. If you value what we do, we could sure use your support. You know, go to the uh, Fallon Forum website, um, make a donation if you can. If you run a small business or a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has a catering service and a floral service as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. And thanks also to uh, psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. Also thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music, speaking of culture. So what's our lineup this week? Well, we're going to talk with uh, Representative J.D. Schulten uh, about Ticketmaster and other corporate conglomerates that are hurting the free market, hurting customers, and also hurting farmers. I'll also share a few stories of people affected directly by climate change. And for our farm and food conversation, Kathy Burns and I will be discussing trends shaping urban agriculture. But first, uh, joining me in the studio, uh, Jeffrey Weiss. He's a professor at Des Moines Area Community College. And when it comes to foreign policy, one of the most thoughtful and well-read people I know. Jeffrey, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh... So let's, um, let's start by... Uh, Looking at a headline or a story, at any rate, in the in the New York Times today, uh, which says that the uh, they claim that the war in Ukraine is entering a new phase. Jeffrey, what do you make of that new phase? Okay, that's probably accurate. I'm I'm guessing what they're speaking of is the reality that Russia has annexed four provinces in south and southeastern parts of four provinces. Ukraine. Right? portions, yeah, more land in some than in others. And what Russian Federation is, is, is clearly doing is they're building a land bridge to Crimea. Now, already, Russian Federation has a bridge to Crimea, which right. I believe is about, I call it the bridge over troubled water, <laughs> uh, to quote Simon Garfunkel. <laughs> That's but, funny and sad, but, but accurate, but, very accurate. But very it is troubled. a bridge. Yeah, yeah, very troubled is. water, yes. So... In the Black Sea. Absolutely. Yeah. So the new phase that the New York Times is is writing about, I'm guessing, I haven't read it, is that the the army's sort of World War One w- warfare will advance or be pushed back from those provinces. And the area of the Donbass that is still being contested will continue to be contested. So this is what is is being discussed right now is a what's called the spring offensive by the Russian Federation, which is to try to consolidate to the extent that they can um, those four provinces and other areas of the Donbass. So this is uh, for people who are into studying war. I mean, this is World War One. I'd rather study peace. Yeah, <laughs> World War One. You know, back and forth, gaining some territory, ceding some territory. And, and for those who may not be that familiar with World War One, we that's what kind of happened on several fronts during that conflict, during abs- the absolutely. war to end all wars. I guess that didn't go so well. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So yep. all right. So so the new phase is Russia just getting more aggressive in the east part of Ukraine, probably hoping to solidify its control over the Donbas region and other areas. It, precisely. Yeah. All right. Yep. And so that's um, where we're at. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yep. and I'm kidding, of course. Yeah. So does this, I mean, I already there's a deep concern about the risk of nuclear war. I mean, we should never not be concerned about the risk of nuclear war. Uh, but the conflict in Ukraine has heightened awareness of yep. the nuclear arsenals of the world, especially U.S. and Russia, and also the increased risk. Do you think this new phase exacerbates that risk, that risk of some kind of a nuclear exchange? Y- yes. There's there's nine countries that have nuclear weapons, the five permanent members of the Security Council, and then um, Israel, uh, India, Pakistan, and North Korea. So there's, there's nine countries that possess nuclear weapons. And when the Russian Federation 
spoke about the use of nuclear weapons in the spring of 2022. Remember, the invasion was February 24th, 2022. And later in the spring, early summer of 2022, if you listen to uh, the president of Russia, he would refer to using nuclear weapons in speaking about Crimea. Because really what this war is about for the Russian Federation is the Black Sea, um, the elusive quest in the history of Russia and the Soviet Union and now the Russian Federation for um, a warm water port, the elusive right. search for a warm water port. Uh, they have that under the USSR, of course. Uh, they've had that since 1783. Okay. Right. So Catherine the Great. So you have a dynamic where you've had the Russian Navy, the what's called the Black Sea Fleet, and even in 1990, when the uh, Soviet Union um, collapsed, you had the area of Crimea was neither de jure nor de facto Ukrainian. What was mm. happening, in fact, was that the population there, which is heavily Russian, um, you know, was similar to Transnistria, an area in Moldova, uh, which didn't really want to be aligned with the Ukraine, um, not even, I mean, more towards Russia because of this long history of Russia. And, you know, it's been a tourist des destination forever. And think about this. In Crimea, Crimea, Crimea. In yeah. Crimea right now, you have the port of Sevastopol. And that is the third federal state in Russia. There's Moscow, there's St. Petersburg, and then there's this third federal state, which not is Crimea. It's, no. No, and, right. and so. Yeah, and so you have you have a situation where this is literally centuries of history. You have the Crimean mm. War, where you know in eighteen fifties the the French, um, so the British. I want to come um, back. I want to come back yeah. to some of that history, but uh, sure. again, again, working our way back. Yeah. At the uh, in the recent uh, State of the Union address uh, by President Biden, uh, president the president said, "quote We're in the strongest position in decades to compete with China or anyone else in the world." He was he was he was focused. He was talking about the modernization of the U.S. military. We're in the strongest position in decades to compete with China or anyone else in the world. That sounds very threatening to me. If I'm the Chinese or the Russians, I hear that I'm thinking that 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 they, they compete there is kind of a euphemism yeah. for militarily dominate. If, as I hear yeah. that, I mean, do you yeah. hear it differently? Well, if you think about it, the United States by itself has more military bases just in the Arab-speaking region of the world, the 22 countries that are called Arab-speaking, which would be North Africa, the so-called Middle East, than all of the countries of the world have military bases all over the world. So wow. if you're talking about military bases, depending on how you count them, you can say United States has, you know, 600 or 700. China has 14. So, <laughs> the, the, yeah, so I think... But they, know, have, but they have spy balloons. They don't need all those yeah, bases. Yeah, I mean, the United States is spending <laughs> close to a trillion dollars in, you know, the our military and well, they just they complex. just approved the biggest budget ever. Absolutely. I mean, and, by, by, and with a significant yeah. increase as well. I mean, I... I I often say the United States has a permanent war economy. We have an empire, military bases, and we are in a state of perpetual war. And the only people in the world that don't know that are the people of the United States. Yeah. Uh, so, so really, you know, no, there there are people who want to do something about that in Congress. Um, uh, Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene, uh, uh, Representative Bobart, uh, Matt Gates. Um, they, they're among 11 House Republicans who are, are calling for an immediate halt of U.S. aid to the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And um, they're arguing that, uh, that, that the current level of support for Ukraine's defense in the face of Russia's invasion is, quote, inadvertently contributing to civilian casualties. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure that's the case. But mm -hmm. what about... <laughs> Are, there, yeah. are, are those the are those the peace doves in the uh, in the U.S. Congress, the, the fringe know, of the Republican Party, calling well, for an end to Ukraine war? I think um, you know I'm not going to speak for them. I will say <laughs> that I think what is most significant, if if it can possibly happen, is a ceasefire, um, diplomacy, and negotiation. 
in this particular, you know, and, and people will ask, you know, along what lines will be there a ceasefire? And we, we know right now that the United States and then, you know, Germany sending tanks, et cetera. And well, reluctantly. Reluctantly. And more and more countries sending weapons. We know that the goal is to make enough gains to force Russia to the negotiating table. Or will that force Russia, will that force Vladimir Putin to say, to heck with it, I'm losing <laughs> I'm going to throw in the towel and, and send off a few nuclear bombs to New York, well, he has, Houston, he, and he, L.A. He, he, he would not send any nuclear weapons anywhere in the world except Kiev. And so the— How do you know that? Well, because it would be, you know— Suicidal. I mean, it would be right. Would but what, be, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he gets to the point where he doesn't care about losing. Well, well, there isn't there, there isn't it, there isn't any indication, you know, in the entire history of the president of Russia, to think that that he is suicidal and that okay. he would would you know would create a situation where Russia would no longer cease to exist as a country when he doesn't need to because he has tactical nuclear weapons that could be used in, you know, in to drop on Kiev and that would cause horrific damage and suffering to the people of Ukraine, but would limit the possibility that you would have mm. a mutually assured destruction, you know, the long so, relationship between the Soviet so, Union so, and so, so, how, what are called tactical nuclear weapons, how do which we, we hope would never yeah, ever get used. Right, but, but again, it, it seems like the... And uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists, I think, have indicated in their uh, their their doomsday yeah. clock that you know right now the situation is more tense than it ever has been. That we are closer mm-hmm. to that risk than ever before. And so that comes back to the question of well, why why not push so hard for diplomacy that that the the uh, the parties involved in this conflict cannot say no to sitting down and, and dialoguing about a solution. I mean, that's what the about thirty. Democrats in the U.S. House proposed in a letter to Biden, and they got shot down so fast, mm-hmm. so firmly that they withdrew the letter. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> every every war has to end. I'm going to say it again. Yeah. Every war has to end. This war is going to end. I'll say that again. This war is going to end. So the only question is when. And there is a former U.S. ambassador who used the phrase that it, it appears that the United States may be fighting to the last Ukrainian. Yeah. Um, in fact, Hillary Clinton mentioned, <laughs> made the made the comparison to Afghanistan at one point um, on a TV interview, which is really wow, what a comparison. That's pretty straightforward. Which was the 1980s when the United States was fighting to the last Afghan. In other words, to try to push out. The Soviet invasion, right? Um, and so, you know, one of the questions we have to ask, and I would ask this of all Republicans and Democrats and everybody, is what is the best for the people of Ukraine, the civilians of yeah. Ukraine? It's not going very well right now. No, it's not. And, and and if Russia, and maybe they've already made the calculation to destroy Ukraine. I mean, kind of. I mean, we should understand the language. We had to burn down the village to save it. Um, I mean that's quite familiar with our own our own history. Then this isn't this is not going to to be um, a good situation for for the people of Ukraine, yeah. who, who by the way have shown that they're a sovereign nation state. Uh, Russia's invasion was illegal. It's a violation of international law. All of those things are true. We still have to end the war and not to be continue so to fuel the war. Beyond politicians, let me ask you this. Where is the peace movement? Because back in the 70s, 80s, even the 60s too, there was a vibrant, active, deep, and effective peace movement across the U.S. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist now. I mean, there are certainly groups that are working on peace and security, yeah, um, but the the depth of uh, of uh, of involvement isn't there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think progressives are divided on this because there is a tendency to say Ukrainians and they are are fighting for their own self determination, and you know let's let's give them the weapons to fight. The question I would have though is, in the long run, is this in the best interest of the people of Ukraine? Is it in the best interest of the world to be fueling 
the war at such a level. Well, um, if there was, if a vibrant peace movement did arise as it was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and, and begin to really make some noise, uh, I mean, you, you, you know, we, we had, we had, we had, we had, we had, we had legislators that consider themselves peace candidates, mm-hmm. congressmen, senators. Tom Harkin was a sure. peace was was a candidate focused on peace issues. Yeah, I mean, is it possible that you can get you could see enough momentum where that might change the conversation? Possibly, but as long as United States people or United States soldiers are not dying, um, maybe a, a better comparison would be the movement. Um, you know, in opposition to the support of when the Reagan administration was supporting, you know, the military, the death squads in Guatemala and El Salvador. Um, yeah. And that was mainly a church movement. And in part because it was it was Catholics. I mean, the Sandinistas were the Nicaraguans were um, what my dad would call statue hugging Catholics. I mean, they weren't just <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. and so, you know, and so and I'm not saying that in this disparaging way. I mean, and so and so there were Christians and Catholics in the United States who, even though. U.S. soldiers weren't being killed, or, or Ameri- well, some, some, you know, the nuns. Sure, and, the nuns. Yeah, them. there were. They they saw a they they could see the relationship there because of their own um, religion, which was a wonderful thing. It was a powerful movement. It's I would just say it's harder to get people to care about Ukrainians mm-hmm. and, and and Russians dying. So one last question, and this is probably unfortunately uh, a question that would require a really long answer to be thorough. But mm-hmm. in a nutshell. Uh, what could have been done historically to avoid getting us into this situation? Well, the promise was made when the Soviet Union collapsed by James Baker and the United States government and the Western countries that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, would not move of one inch, inch west of Germany. And what, what, what form did that promise take? A handshake? It was a handshake. Writing? Yep, it was a handshake. But um, it was it was it was known. It wasn't something uh, that was said in secret. It was known, and of course Gorbachev died a few years ago, and he's been really pressed over the years, and and before he died, and and he said yes, this this was our agreement, and he said you know great powers honor their agreements, hmm. and of course in the mid '90s when uh, Bill Clinton decided to expand NATO into the Baltics and really to move a hostile military alliance up into the borders of the Russian Federation, the leading minds in the United States, George Kennan, the father of containment, um, they protested vehemently. They said, this is catastrophic. They said, this is going to cause a conflict with Russia, and it's unnecessary. In fact, Kennan Mm. actually made the comment that Russia is going to respond and then people are going to say, see, we did have to expand NATO because uh, Russia's... <laughs> so they make the... Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's similar to like, you know, how racism works. Like, you know, the Jewish ghettos that the Christians uh, force Jewish people in in Europe, you put everybody in the worst situation, the worst living situation. And then when they act up or maybe they commit crime and stuff, then you point your right. finger at them. See those filthy blah, blah, blah. Same worked in Ireland. The English took away the land, took there away the language. Um, then you make may, their behavior may, yeah. your rationale for your racism. Sure, yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> and so that's that's a short answer. Although, let me say this. I don't go as far as some scholars do, like Mersheimer and others, to say Russia was provoked. I think that's a little too strong. Um, I think that that we you know we still have to understand, as all of you understand, that this is a Russia is responsible. This is a violation of international law. It's an illegal war. It's a war of aggression. And the Ukrainians are showing a lot of the world a lesson in um, standing up for you know democracy with a small d. And they yeah. they are, they are. And so yeah. I think we have to ask what is what is best for them. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. I wish we had more time. Folks, yep, uh, Jeff- you, Jeffrey Weiss has been our guest here. We're going to move on. Going to take a short break. Uh, and when we come back, uh, Representative J.D. Scholten is going to join us. We'll be discussing Ticketmaster, the virtual monopoly that uh, recently, um, well, <laughs> recently got uh, one black eye, and they probably deserve two black eyes. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. 
Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, folks, at a time when a handful of really big corporations control most of the media, the niche that we provide here at this community-operated station, that's more important than ever. So please support what we do. You can go to the Fallon Forum website. You can donate. You can even better become a monthly sponsor, or if you own a small business or a nonprofit, talk to me about becoming a sponsor of this program as well. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Check out Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page for more information. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Klipsham says that no matter how you plan or renovate your project, please use the most energy-efficient methods and the most uh, greenest, longest-lasting materials available. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, with me now in the studio, uh, Representative J.D. Scholten. She, he's a Democrat from Sioux City, Iowa. He's a former pro baseball player, which I think is very, very cool. Uh, and we're going to cover a few issues here. Uh, J.D., welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. You spoke uh, pretty strongly recently about Ticketmaster. Uh, and then I noticed that, that after you launched that conversation, I started seeing articles about it in the New York Times. So way to be, the, way to be on the cutting edge there. So, I mean... People don't even think about this thing. Uh, you know, they, they, they buy a ticket, they realize the price is jacked up, but what do they do about it? Yeah, I think an, I, I've seen the, the whole industry kind of transition in the last few years. And one of the things that I'm seeing, and, and it's not just in ticketing, it is in all different facets of our economy, is that we see a consolidation. And when just a few corporations control the majority of the market share, you're seeing abuse, and you're mm-hmm. seeing consumers having to pay more than they ever have, and this is just this is just another example of that. And so, uh, it really got to, uh, blown out of proportion when uh, there was already rumblings about things. And and uh, there's a, a country musician that I like, Zach Bryant, and he his latest live album is called uh, All My Homies Hate Ticketmaster. <laughs> and, uh, and then the whole, um, we, we saw a series of things happen last year when the boss uh, uh, went on, Bruce Springsteen, when he announced his tour, um, they jacked up prices. So it was, uh, they, tri- they tried this new pricing model out that uh, tickets were $5,000 because when there's so much demand, then they it, it fluctuates. And so uh, that happened. Then you saw uh, there's a, uh, Spanish-speaking or Spanish-language uh, artist uh, Bad Bunny, who it, down in Mexico City, uh, where there were a lot of uh, fake tickets and thousands of people who bought real tickets could not go to the show, and there's a, a big disaster there. And then the big thing that got a lot of the press was when Taylor Swift's uh, right. new tour, yes, I and, that one. and that when that was announced, uh, they were not able to handle that, even though Taylor Swift's uh, uh, crew asked. Yeah. Ticketmaster, if they could do it. So, why do these artists and the venues that host them even bother to contract with someone as unscrupulous as Ticketmaster? What, what What's the other option? And that's where we're Sell at. Sell your right tickets now. directly? <laughs> well, it's not possible because Ticketmaster owns also a lot of the venues. And so there is no workaround. If there was, there would be a lot more people doing it. So it's it. like so, vertical integration within the in, uh, the entertainment industry. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing this yeah. in all different uh, facets of our economy. So what can the legislature at the state level do about the problem, or is this going to be a national fix? When it comes to antitrust, a lot of it has to deal with uh, national issues. And so uh, I think well, what we have seen is, is Congress has taken investigations and have had um, uh, they, – they're getting information about it. They haven't acted legislatively, but uh, that's, that's the next step. And that's the frustrating part is like, okay, we have this 
mass amount of people who have joined the what I like to call the antitrust movement. And what are we going to do from there? And so they have these congressional hearings. That's great. But then what's that next step? Yeah. And we have not seen that next step. Well, my guess is that the uh, those who benefit from weak antitrust laws uh, have a pretty powerful presence, not just at the uh, U.S. Capitol, but probably at state legislatures as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they, they, they probably fund campaigns. They probably pay for lobbyists. They probably tend to get their way, and sometimes that means just preventing a, 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 an intelligent discussion about how to fix an industry that has become vertically integrated. Absolutely. And, and I mean, here's an example of what I'm trying to do in the state house. There's, uh, I mean, this is not the most pressing issue when, it, when you talk about health care, funding, sure. education, stuff like this. But one of my side projects is ending major league blackouts. So in the state of Iowa, we don't have a major league team. Yet we have six different markets that we cannot watch games, even though we buy the subscription to MLB TV. And so ML, Major League Baseball has a antitrust exemption from a oh, lawsuit. Oh, that's right. From, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, and yeah. That, I never understood why that ever was allowed. It, it, well, <laughs> back in the day, there was multiple leagues. And so there, the powers that be back then allowed them uh, to have it so then they would be the dominant league. Uh, and so then they've blown up. Which was, which was also uh, another way to form a monopoly, I suppose. It, well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a legalized monopoly. And so yeah. when right now we have all these regional broadcasts, uh, and the Minnesota Twins, they're on a uh, Bally Sports North who are filing for bankruptcy, and they predict that they'll go bankrupt in the middle of the season. Yeah. And so, I mean— Fans are, are, I mean, I, the reason why I love baseball so much, I mean, I got to play it, but like every time, every day after school, I would go home and I watch the Chicago Cubs. I knew all their players from the late 80s and early 90s because they were on TV constantly. Right. And now we have the next generation of kids uh, looking elsewhere, and it's just a way that we're not growing the game. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's billionaire owners uh, profiting, and who gets left behind? Regular folks. And for me, it was uh, being the troop bugler in my Boy Scout troop, was bringing my bugle to Fenway Park <laughs> and playing Reveille when they were doing something good and taps if they lost. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and also, I guess my, my brother was a friend, his friend in, in, uh, in elementary school, middle school, I guess, was uh, Michael Yastrzemski. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, so here's here's another aspect that I see in the economy, and this just came out. Uh, I saw today that over the weekend there was the National uh, Cattlemen's Beef Association had yeah. their big uh, forum, and one of the things that they were uh, in their agenda, and it's I'm going to read it here, and it says combating overly reactive packers and stockyards, which is gypsa, and I can get into that, but uh, the rules. And basically... That uh, sounds like a bad thing. Well... <laughs> from, so, from, from a Democrat, Democratic with a small D point right, of view. Yeah. Right. And so here we are where the farmers, when you sell a, 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 um, a head of cattle, a percentage of that goes to uh, the beef uh, checkoff system. Right, sure. And same with hogs. Right, and, yeah. right, in every industry. And so that money then goes, and it, it goes eventually to, uh, so like the, to advertise for beef. So like the whole where's the beef advertisement uh, from, uh, I don't know, a couple decades ago, I guess, at this point. So all of that is is from uh, to try to promote for beef. But then when you have the, the entity that's trying to promote it, also so working against farmers, because what the, the Packers and Stockyards Act, and it's a 1921 act that the original uh, sponsor is from sure. Northwood, Iowa, where my grandmother caught, uh, ben taught. Wright, ben Wright County <laughs> uh, there, yeah. Uh, Worth County. Uh, Worth County, yeah, Worth County, that's right. Um, she taught uh, fifth grade for, for 40 years there. Anyhow, um, but the Packers and Stockyards Act, is it's meant for uh, uh, fair trade. It's meant for a fair competition. It's meant for a fair market, yeah. and, and that allows farmers uh, to have more success, but so, so that, why would the cattlemen oppose that? Because they're being run by the mono the monopolies, which are the meat packers, yeah. and so and, and the biggest one of which is owned by the Chinese, right? Well, and <laughs> and the Brazilian, uh, which which, uh, which one is Brazilian? So oh, well, sorry, beef they, and beef. So Smithfield yeah. owns uh, China owns Smithfield. Yeah, Smithfield, Smithfield, and that's one out of every uh, four hogs. So twenty five percent of hogs here in Iowa and across the nation are owned by China, <laughs> and then when you go to the beef industry. 
you have National Beef and JBS, which are two so of the four right. monopolies that's, that's Brazil, that are right? yeah Brazil. And so so here's how crazy it is. And like the pandemic put a perfect spotlight on this situation where you had consumers paying the most they ever had for meat. Farmers are getting squeezed and workers are working in dangerous situations and being suppressed. And so here we are where in all, almost every one of these uh, agriculture monopolies had had a record profit or near record profit in the last few years. And so, I mean, again, it's Ticketmaster, it's Major League Baseball, it's, it's these meat packings. The, the wealthy are going to get more wealthy and yeah. they're leaving the rest well, of us behind. And, and I know a big issue here in Iowa and also other uh, upper Midwestern states is these uh, carbon dioxide pipelines, yeah. which are being promoted as a solution to climate change, but they're absolutely not. Anybody who is really in touch with what's going on with our climate it knows that this is not a genuine climate solution. It's also a horrible, uh, I mean, really badly received proposal among most farmers in Iowa. I mean, I know there are some who are signing on with the, uh, the companies that want to build these pipelines, but many aren't, um, and many are really upset about it, and there's lawsuits like crazy going over right. because of this. And now there's legislation proposed to restrict the use of eminent domain so it can't be that easy to go in and condemn a farmer's land to put a pipeline through. Right. Well, one of the things uh, my, my colleague, Representative Adam Z Zabner, put in a bill about funding a research project. Because you see the, the well, what we've seen is the majority of research are from oil uh, states. And the reason that is is because there's already drilling happening there. So, mm -hmm. so that's where the studies are happening. And so, you know, I think it's very important to uh, sequester carbon. So, like, how do how can we do that here? Trees in the state of Iowa, right? <laughs> <laughs> Plants and yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and but yeah. wetlands, yeah. right? And so, um, that some of those things are, are not being met uh, right now. And that's I would love to see a study that can to see like where in Iowa can we put some of this carbon. So, as what well. are the prospects for passage of eminent domain legislation here in Iowa? And I, I'd like to ask the same question of our neighboring states and some of the other parts of the country that are dealing with similar uh, proposals. But what about just in Iowa here? Is there momentum toward uh, toward restricting the use of eminent domain to build these pipelines? Uh, I mean, I can only speak anecdotally of what's happening in Northwest Iowa. And there's a lot of towns and yeah. a lot of small town or and, and farmers um, in small town communities that are very frustrated with this. They don't want to be dictated what's, what to do on their lands. And so there is backlash in, in Northwest Iowa, where, I, where I'm coming from, on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and one of the, uh, one of the primary uh, movers of legislation to address that is from your corner of the state, uh, Jeff Taylor, yep. Republican senator. Yep. But um, this should be a bipartisan issue, I would think. Well, I mean— go back to my congressional run, I ran against Steve King, and he's a big proponent of, of uh, property rights. And yes. so he's huge against this. So it's weird how you get kind of... So King is... A, <laughs> former Congressman King is against the uh, carbon dioxide pipelines. He, 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 I, I, as far as I can tell, he is. Well, and, and, and it's, it's, just, it's weird, the coalition yeah. that you can build well, and on the, the speaker, of The spe current Speaker of the House, Pat Grassley, who, yes, is Senator Chuck Grassley's grandson. He's the Speaker of the Iowa House has said that he's never had as much correspondence from constituents on any issue as this. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. We had quite a few over the school voucher uh, stuff. But uh, uh, so where I live, it's not as uh, is more urban. And so um, I don't get caught up in quite the agricultural uh, aspects of some of this uh, battle. But, sure. but uh, I can see where he does that. And we had, I mean, we had several, we had one candidate in particular who, is apolitical but got active and, and ran against a Republican incumbent because that Republican incumbent is for the pipelines. And and he ended up, I mean, with no money uh, and, and got in really late and ran as an independent. He ended up getting, I want to say, like 35% uh, up in northwest Iowa. Pretty good for an independent. Absolutely. Coming in late with little money. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, again, this is a this is a nonpartisan issue, uh, but you've got pretty strong uh, people, uh, powerful people on both sides um, who want this? Yeah. I mean, Governor Vilsack's son is the legal counsel for one of the three companies. Yep. The building trades unions, of course, will build anything, yep. <laughs> even if a lot of it is being built with, you know, unions from other parts of the country. Uh, and on the Republican side, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, financial supporter of Republican candidates, Bruce Rastetter, owns one of the three companies. Of course, Valero, the big oil company, is behind one of these, mm -hmm. and. And you know, and Governor, former Governor Branstad, 
Governor for Life Branstead, as some of us call him, <laughs> was uh, was um, is, is on the is on is on the payroll of Summit as well. So there's a lot of political power on both sides to buck. Do you think the legislature is going to have the guts to buck that, given the intense pressure coming from the grassroots to do something? Well, I will say this, uh, especially on the other side, being being a freshman, <laughs> I'm at a disadvantage and being in the minority, I'm at a disadvantage. But what we're seeing from the other side is there has been a tremendous amount of pressure with the school voucher uh, being passed. There was a tremendous amount of pe- uh, uh, pressure with medical malpractice, the CAPS, um, uh, being passed last week. And so I don't know how much more political pressure is out there because they're starting to break uh, and having a lot of frustrations on the other side. So yeah. uh, we'll, we'll see. But um, uh, it's not something that is at the forefront uh, that they're talking about every single day. But regarding politics, you ran against a guy who, um, uh, U.S. Congressman Steve King, he'd been in office for a long time. Mm-hmm. He had been pretty much invincible. And you nearly beat him. Yeah. You came very close. Uh, and I, I would say, you know, that's partly because you ran a campaign that was different than what most Democrats have run, uh, much more populist, yeah. <laughs> very progressive, you know, and, um, and and you worked your tail off. I mean, I, no tail. <laughs> I, I look at you right now, I don't see any tail. And, uh, and, and, yet, and, and yet a lot of Democrats still don't seem to get that. I mean, I still see a party that seems to be very much comfortable with the status quo, even as more and more Americans feel the status quo is not serving them well? I feel there's a populist movement waiting to happen. I mean, we saw that in the strikes that happened a year and a year and a half ago, uh, in, in two just major strikes just ended here in in uh, Iowa, the one in Cedar Rapids and the one down in Burlington, the UAW and the Ingridion one in Cedar Rapids. And so um, I, I'm cut from that prairie populism cloth. And so my heroes, Senator Harkin, uh, Wellstone, uh, we need more uh, branches of that, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to do. I think there's two things that I'm trying to do. One is build the party, but the other is shift the party to focus on more populist issues because at the end of the day, you know, that's, that's my bread and butter. But the current power establishment within the party doesn't want that. They are, in my opinion, they, they, don't, they don't want to see that momentum. They well, don't want to see that shift. Well, I'll say we are the party. And okay, if good. you're frustrated with it, <laughs> change. You go out there, and, and that's what I've seen, is when you go out there, uh, prove you're trustworthy, prove you're, you're going to work your tail off, you can persuade folks. And so uh, that's, at the end of the day, that's uh, the politics that I'm, I'm going to display and, and yeah. continue to use because that's what's in my heart. That's what fires me up every day. One more partisan question, but from the other yeah. side. I've been, I've, been in, I've been aware of Iowa politics for over 40 years. I've never seen a House or Senate majority by any one party as big as they are now. I mean, you are, you know, by, by historic standards, the smallest minority <laughs> among minorities. And uh, is, is are Republicans, they don't, need, they don't even have to reach out to Democrats, but are, they, are, are some of them at least trying, willing to do that? Uh, so the general consensus uh, at the Capitol is that there's going to be a swing back. And this is not the Democrats being wishful or hopeful or anything like this. The other side has mentioned it to me several times. Yeah. Uh, lobbyists uh, who, who are up there who kind of play both sides see it happening too. So we're, we're definitely at a, a spot where our back's against the wall right now. But uh, with what they're doing, um, it, it, there's a lot of opportunity. And I, I would like to say like the, the freshman class in the Iowa House is a very talented, very hungry class and uh, expect uh, some things to go back our way in the near future. The freshman Democratic class specifically, yes. or their talent is it talent in the Republican freshman side as well? I would say uh, I'm speaking just of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, J.D., thank you so much for joining us, folks. We've been talking with J.D. Schulten, state representative, newly elected, uh, representing uh, Sioux City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us, J.D. Thanks for having me. When we come back from a short break, folks, we're going to be talking about climate change, specifically wanting to put a face on some of the people who have been directly impacted by some of what's happening with uh, the crazy changes in our weather around the world. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week 
with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back, folks. Ed Fallon with you here. Remember, you can support our alternative to the angry shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And thanks, uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Western and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays, by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. You know, sometimes climate change seems distant and abstract. You know, and I know it's, it's, it's such a big, a big problem that it's hard to wrap your mind around it. And it doesn't help, of course, that you've got a denying, denial industry well-funded by, uh, by big oil and very effective and very pervasive. And, of course, people are going to want to believe that everything's going to be okay. And they don't want to believe we have this terrible problem. They don't want to believe that change is imminent and necessary. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to, um, to get people to understand why, what, what's going on and why it's important that we all take action. And my thought is that the, you know, the best way to cut through um, the lies from big oil <laughs> uh, and the innate uh, inability to get your arms around such a huge problem. The best way to deal with that is through stories. Um, and of course, I, my own story on that front is chronicled in Marcher Walker Pilgrim, the book I wrote after walking uh, 3,000 plus miles from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. And more than just my own story, that book also chronicles the stories of people I met along the march route, uh, starting right off the bat with the Latino community or communities even, that uh, basically live in the shallow, shadow of the uh, Valero uh, refinery located in Wilmington. Uh, by the way, Valero was also one of the three, one of the companies behind the three big pipelines proposed for the upper Midwest. So, uh, yeah, there was also, I, I also talked to share the story of the, uh, the family that made shoes in the high desert of Arizona. Uh, they lived off the grid. They were very independent entrepreneurs, and yet they were aware that they were probably going to be forced out of their home because of the advance of desertification in their area. Um, there's also the indigenous communities in New Mexico. Uh, I remember having lunch with a, a group of Native women who were in their 70s and 80s who told me it didn't used to be this way. We used to have more snow. We used to have less wind. Uh, we used to have a more balanced rainfall. They there wasn't a single person there who didn't understand what was going on. And, you know, because Native communities tend to live in much more, much closer harmony with the natural world. But, you know, it's, it's the, the, the range of people who are on the front lines of climate change right now, it's, it's about as broad as it can get. Uh, another group that I talk about in, this, uh, in, in my book, Marcher Walker Pilgrim, is the uh, farmers in, New, New, in Nebraska who were fighting the Keystone XL pipeline. And, you know, and we've got the same situation here in Iowa now. Interestingly, you know, the oil pipeline, Dakota Access Pipeline, which we did not stop, uh, that is part of the climate problem because we're talking about increased oil production from the Bakken region now going overseas. And with these carbon pipelines, <laughs> interestingly, of course, that's presented as a solution to climate change. It is absolutely not you know, consult anyone who is involved with that. And we talk about this on this program. We'll talk about it again. 
So, you know, any more farmers in the Midwest, whether it's Nebraska, Iowa, South and North Dakota, Minnesota, you name it, farmers are in the direct line of a lot of what's happening climate-wise. And that doesn't even talk, I mean, not even talking about the um, tornadoes in January uh, or in December. Fun fact, if I can call it a fun fact, the most tornadoes in any single day in Iowa is not historically in June, May, June, July, when that's what's called, you know, tornado season. It's in December. You know something's going wrong with the weather when your worst, you know, your, your worst record ever for most tornadoes in a day is in December. And of course, farmers deal with that. And even more profoundly, the second derecho, which is basically like a straight line tornado. Uh, it's, a, it's an inland hurricane, it's been called. So, you know, everybody's on the front lines of this growing problem. And yet some people still don't grasp it because of the denial industry and how powerful and effective it is at, at conveying lies. Uh, you know, I also in my book, I talk with uh, people who lived in uh, mostly black neighborhoods just south of Chicago. Uh, they've been on the front lines of climate change for a long time because they have had to put up with incredible uh, uh, you know, impacts, negative impacts, pollution, air pollution, uh, all, all sorts of um, land use issues from the refineries that, uh, of course, if you've ever driven um, along, is it, I think it's I-80, uh, through Gary, Indiana, you've, of course, seen the uh, refineries uh, in Gary, Indiana, Whiting, South Chicago, that area. People live there, too, and they've got to put up with that. They've, you know, the, the, other, the, one, the one last one I'd mention from my book, uh, the families we met in rural Appalachia in uh, Pennsylvania, who were dealing with the destruction of their drinking water due to fracking. You know, there are so many stories out there. I came upon uh, a couple recently that, um, that also caught my attention. I'll share them with you as I have time. Uh, Ken Donnell, this is a, a guy from Texas originally who lived in Greenville, California. And he, um, he put, he, he'd established a pretty successful business building musical instruments. And then in uh, July of 2021, the Dixie Fire came through. That was the largest wildfire in California history. And uh, that fire raged from July 13th through October 25th, and it absolutely destroyed not just the building, but all of his instruments. I mean, we're, he, he makes things out of wood. How safe is that going to be? It burned up everything, you know, including instruments he had inherited from his uh, grandfather. Um, you know, it even burned up his getaway car, which was packed with, um, you know, things he needed to, to make his escape. Well, actually, I think he got away because he wasn't there, but he was ready for it. But he was out running an errand when the Dixie Fire came through and, again, destroyed not just his place, but the most of the town of, uh, of Greenville. And, uh, you know, why is that a climate story? Well, I, I had a firefighter on this program um, a couple of years ago. Uh, the, the, the lead fireman in a, of, a, of a team that was fighting fires in Colorado, and he said... You cannot find a firefighter out there doing this job that does not understand that this is connected to climate change. And so, you know, again, there, there, there are those, and we had a president once, who um, are going to say that it's a matter of raking the forest floor and other things. Uh, and there are certainly other factors contributing to fires, uh, uh, gender reveal parties that involved, uh, involve um, fireworks that get caught, that catch something on fire. Yeah, that's a bad idea. Uh, building too close to areas that are prone to fires. But, you know, there's no doubt about it in anyone's mind who's studying this stuff that, the, that, the, that droughts combined with, you know, increased winds and other, other weather phenomena are what are causing the significant growth in wildfires in California. So what uh, the message from, uh, from Ken Donnell is, and I quote, uh, please wake up. It's going to happen to you soon, one way or another. Water is going to become scarcer. Storms are going to become stronger. Uh, there's a story that, we're, that is worth paying attention to. Another story for you. This one from a young uh, Colombian woman, uh, Yershel Rodriguez. And she lives on an island called, I've never, never heard of this island, Providencia. Beautiful name for an island. 
It's a small island, about home to about 5,000 people. It's um, 1,000 miles away from mainland Colombia, but it's still part of Colombia. And uh, it, is a, it is an island that uh, was hit really hard by, um, by Hurricane Iota. That happened in November of 2020. Again, November is not normally your, your, your serious hurricane month. Uh, this one was, um, I think, Hurricane 3. And it destroyed 98% of the infrastructure on, on her island, on uh, Providencia. And, and she was, uh, I think, a teenager at the time. And she joined with uh, 23 other young Colombians to sue the Colombian government. This is much like the, uh, the lawsuit we've seen in the U.S., Juliana and others versus, well, Oregon versus the U.S., for not taking action, not, not only not taking action to protect their future, but making it worse. Policies, tax giveaways, various types of programs that make climate change even worse. And so Yershel and other Colombians have filed a similar lawsuit against the Colombian government. And their argument is that uh, deforestation needs to stop because deforestation of the rainforest in Colombia and elsewhere is part of what's making climate change worse. And uh, that the current amount of deforestation in Colombia is not going to allow that government to meet the commitments it made at the Paris Climate Summit. And uh, unfortunately, deforestation is continuing. In Colombia, it rose uh, last year, in 2021 rather, it rose by 1.5% over the 2020 level. To put that in perspective, that's 430,000 plus acres of rainforest destroyed just in the year 2021. And of course, it's not just Colombia. We hear more about Brazil. In fact, a de deforestation in Brazil's Amazon reached a record high during the first six months of 2021. And uh, how big an area? Well, an area uh, five times the size of New York City was destroyed. So, you know, again, Yershel and her co-plaintiff's perspective is that, you know, saving, and this is a direct quote, saving the Amazon is a part of saving my own island. And again, when 98% of your island is destroyed by a hurricane in November, you know, and, and to those who say, well, you know, hurricanes have always been a problem. Yeah, they've always been a problem. But, you know, 2020 was the first year since records began that two hurricanes formed in the Atlantic in November. Again, that's past the normal peak of storm season. It can happen, but it's rare. And these are strong. Um, you know, Here's a Google search. Look this up. Search for climate change and hurricanes. And here's what I got. It is clear that climate change increases the upper limit on hurricane strength and rain rate, and that it also raises the average sea level and therefore storm surge. The influence on the total number of hurricanes is currently uncertain, as are other aspects, and more and more hurricanes in the Atlantic every season getting to Category 3, Category 4, or Category 5 compared to seasons 40 years ago. That is happening, and it's not contestable. And scientists know why it's happening. So maybe if we have a hard time wrapping our minds around something as big and, and, and almost you know, beyond, just, just beyond us, the climate change, look at some of the stories. Ken in, in Greenville, California. Your shell in Colombia. Um, there's a whole, there's a really good... Um, study from a group called, from a paper called Sky News where they look at uh, a bunch of different people's stories all over the world. It's worth looking at. These are just a couple that I pulled from that. Anyway, um, we could talk a lot about that, but the, the message is climate change. Take it seriously. Do something. And don't fall for schemes like CO2 pipelines. Hey, this is Ed Fallon. When we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns is going to join me for a conversation um, about uh, trends that are shaping urban agriculture. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, 
Use the most energy efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained and valued and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor of this program as well. That would be awesome. Hey, and speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has excellent catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. So Kathy Burns is with me, and we're going to be talking about trends regarding urban agriculture. This is interesting to me. Well, more uh, specifically, in uh, early, well, January 2022, uh, Successful Farming Magazine, that's a, an online publication from Meredith, they published uh, what they saw as the four new trends shaping the future of urban agriculture. So it's been a year since then. Mm -hmm. um, we're not going to be able to go into a lot of depth about it all, but we can just talk about the four predictions that they had and... Uh, Kind of some of them are strike me as a little odd or I don't know. First of all, I think it's important to think about what is urban agriculture. Um, Growing food in the city. That that's that's exactly what yeah. I think it is. Some people think it's a big, huge plot of land where you grow a lot of stuff that you sell. So not no, necessarily you, so. You um, can do what we do, or, that's or right. there are larger larger urban farms in Des Moines even than us. Um, yeah. And then you could have a pot with a tomato in it. You can. <laughs> It's all urban agriculture. So prediction number one last year uh, was that CEA, or Controlled Environment Agriculture, hype will start to balance out. There was a lot of big talk last year about these um, greenhouse growings, big high-tech greenhouses, and a lot of vertical farming. And the prediction yeah. was that that would... Uh, that would be seen a, like a little more for what maybe it is, which is just a, a more hubbub than needed to grow food and possibly even some green, yeah. green well, washing. It's, it's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people in Des Moines at any rate and probably other cities as well live in apartments. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Des Moines, even as we speak, is building more and more apartments where you could not possibly grow any food yep. except maybe a tomato in a pot. Mm -hmm. And so if you envision, you know, increasing local food resilience, uh, you know, maybe some of those buildings, th those those big vertical greenhouses or indoor operations are needed. I don't know. They might be, yeah. It doesn't, it's not very appealing to me as somebody who likes to put his hands in the dirt. As long as it's not just <laughs> greenwashing because 70% uh, of some experts that were polled about these uh, – these growing spaces did think that it there was a lot of greenwashing in them. Yeah. Um, prediction number two was that more cities will push urban agricultural policy initiatives forward, and that is what we were seeing and we were part of here in yeah. Des Moines yeah. um, throughout the year. And that's a good that's good news. Yeah, and we got uh, right now in Des Moines Metro, there are suburbs that are pushing to allow chickens. Des Moines has had a very progressive pro-chicken ordinance forever, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. but now some of the suburbs are moving in that direction as well. And I, I hear more about that happening around the country. I know in New York, there's they've now got an Urban Agricultural Advisory Council. Yes. And, and you can even have chickens in New York. Well, and the thought <laughs> was that even one person who gets in there close to city officials, close to the mayor, can have a big impact on uh, making sure that that the, people's right to grow food is top of mind when plant, there's a lot of planning done. And that kind of leads us to prediction number three. Urban agriculture will become crucial to master 
planning projects. Is that happening? Well, the, an example is a $500 billion technological megacity in Saudi Arabia trying to become the world's <laughs> first, the world's most food self-sufficient city. To me, that's that's taken a little bit to an extreme. It's more than a tomato in a pot. Ed. Well, that well, but but that's uh, that's actually the kind of initiative we'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know how I don't know how they manage the water situation there. Well, the, there's also a team trying to do a prototype sustainable floating city in Korea with a lot of uh, food right. grown on it and a closed loop huh. system, etc. But the last prediction was that farm planning will continue to go digital, very basically using a lot of apps and stuff to track things and plan and do finances. Boring. <laughs> How do you feel about it? It's pretty techy. Uh, I suppose for a big operation, you need some of that. Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks to Kathy and thanks to Jeffrey Weiss and Representative J.D. Scholten for joining us today. Thanks also our, to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake, Family Psychiatry. And thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. Thanks again, folks, and we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.